Hello, my name is Rebecca Reese, and welcome to Digital Dissect, the podcast that observes and breaks open the music industry through the lens of digital analysis. Because I'm on a quest to make sense of the changing digital landscape, exploring questions like, how is digital media changing the culture of creative industries, and how do we take advantage of a new type of economic market? Today I'm joined by Ryan Farley, Managing Director of Cooking Vinyl Publishing, to discuss the importance of sub-publishing relationships in a digital economy. The music industry operates as two strands, monetizing several copyright controls. Record labels exploit the master rights of a track, whereas publishers exploit the literary and music works, in other words, benefiting songwriters. For example, when music is licensed for a streaming service, a direct deal between the service and a record company will give them a license for the sound recording, whilst a separate deal will be made for a publisher or a collecting society, such as the PRS, to license the song. To clarify, the PRS are the UK Performing Rights Organisation that sit as an intermediary to licence and collect royalties in a centralised manner for members globally. Because streaming is a form of on-demand content, they also require a mechanical licence to ensure that music can be reproduced, communicated and made readily available. Ryan has spent the last three years re-establishing Cooking Vinyl's in-house publishing department, working with songwriters such as Alex Patterson from The Orb, Marie Dahlstrom and Toby Sebastian. Previous to this, he was a former A&R manager at Warner Chapel, championing artists such as Madian, who produced for Lady Gaga and Ellie Goulding, as well as Max Magelliot, who wrote for Wolfgang. The connections he forged here as a result of those roles are sure to bring some really valuable insights to our conversation. Hey Ryan, thank you for your time today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I guess we'll start by diving into a bit of an overview about why publishing is important um, and how this works at Cooking Vinyl and what this means for your day-to-day. Yeah, so uh, so I'm the uh, managing director of the publishing side at Cooking Vinyl and publishing is essentially the record label for songwriters. So we work directly with songwriters who may also be artists, but a lot of times we'll be writing songs for artists to record and release separately. So we represent their interests, we register their songs, we make sure their money's collected around the world. We also push it for exploitation with syncs on video games, films, TV shows, etc. And We also put a lot of focus on creative side. So that's writer development, career development, everything from putting sessions together, giving song critique, trying to put a a strategy together for them so they are constantly developing their career. So yeah, that's getting into bigger and better writing sessions, uh, having songs cut with artists around the world and 
promoting them within the industry as as much as possible. And so just to highlight, this is really benefiting and working with the songwriting of a song opposed to the label just exploiting the actual recording, the audio. Yeah, so primarily it breaks down to publishers are concerned with the copyrights as opposed to record labels who are concerned with the master rights. There's a, a long and intertwined relationship between the two. But, you know, the publishing industry has been around for over 200 years. The recording industry has been around for about 70. So there's been a lot of changes and bumps along the road. And obviously, we'll get into the current issues further down this conversation. On the recording side, this past year, we've seen a lot of albums pushed back into 2021. Now, I can think off the top of my head on the cooking vinyl side, Passenger was pushed back to this January. Carrie Watts' album has just come out. And this is because a lot of the schedules have had to change revolving around live. So I'm wondering how this shift affected publishing, but also what has the effect of the pandemic been on publishing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's had a a huge effect on us. Personally, I've been lucky enough to be able to continue working from home. But in the in the wider scheme of things, you know, a lot, like you say, a lot of albums have been pushed back that were due to come out last year. So their records and campaigns that we had budgeted around financially, which means that, you know, this year's financial results are going to be different to what we had planned. Whilst there hasn't been a lot of live touring and album campaigns, it's meant more time for other projects and for more co-writing. You know, we've tried to make the most of it, tried to keep our writers busy and, you know, look for new opportunities. One silver lining that came out of last year was that everyone out of necessity had to get used to working through Zoom. That presented a lot of opportunities that people probably hadn't considered or explored before, such as, you know, we had writers who would normally only ever do sessions with the artist in the room because they, they want to build that really strong relationship with them and, and have that connection. You know, whilst it's still the ideal, the necessity of having to work through Zoom means that now it doesn't matter where the artist is. So writers are now working, you know, from their studio or from their place of work in London with artists in, say, Australia or America or Mexico or India. And um, all you've got to work around is the time difference. So that's a really great thing. You know, we've been able to find new opportunities for writers that probably would have been a lot further down on the priority list, to be honest. But it's actually opened a lot of new conversations, a lot of new relationships. You know, and I think that's definitely something that will continue now, even once we're back to whatever normal is. I've seen quite a lot of Zoom writing sessions going on and that's really interesting. I think what comes to mind here was Nina Nesbitt and she was working with people in the US that actually helped boost her TikTok career a little bit and she's obviously now finding a whole new avenue for her music production. And yeah, without this time, maybe she wouldn't have gone down that route. And with the absence of live, how has this affected your A&R? Were you doing a lot of this through attending live shows? It has affected it to a degree, but it's not a choice we've got. We can't decide to go to a gig or not. It's now you can't go to a gig. So you have to factor that into your sort of analysis and decision making. You just have to fall back onto other things. So, you know, looking at live performances on YouTube or, you know, signing in for a live stream performance. It's not the same, but you can only work with what you have to work with. That said, I think where the industry is at at the moment in terms of what type of artists are being signed, I don't think on the whole live is a huge part of the decision making process now. I think it's definitely more skewed towards streaming. You know, obviously there's still artists out there who will live and die on the road. And, you know, last year, this year, has been absolutely terrible for them. Going back onto your last point about albums being put back, you know, a lot of artists, particularly on independence, 
um, the live factor is such a huge element of the campaign because it's not just going out there to sell a few tickets. It's going out to promote the record. It's actually selling records on tour directly to the fan base, you know, bundling in live tickets with an album sale. It's a huge part of it for those type of artists. There are a lot of difficulties and hurdles. There's been a lot of pain, to be honest, over the last year for artists, managers, and obviously live promoters and everyone in the live sector. You know, and I, I don't want to sort of sit here and sort of go, oh, I'm sad for them, but I'm all right kind of thing. Because the bottom line is that we will feel the effects in the publishing industry, but we'll feel them a bit further down the line because of how the, the mechanics of the pipeline system work of uh, publishing royalties filtering in you know we're expecting to feel the effects of that starting this year probably for the next sort of 18 months to two years to be honest i think um the musicians that rely on offline interaction the live shows the physical sales more are kind of in the folk and the country genre and maybe in the contemporary pop world or with producers and rappers these sort of artists are really predisposed to streaming and have grown up in the digital world and they are doing really well during this time when we are really reliant on streaming. And I'm wondering how this is going to change genres, how it's going to change music. Do you think this is really what's contributed to the genreless playlist kind of idea that's coming up with Spotify at the moment? In, in the culture that we live in, and the sort of microcosm that is the music industry, we're kind of used to that concept anyway. You know, we have New Music Friday every week which is, you know, 30, 40 songs of, of everything, pretty much. Do I think it will affect how music's made or, or what artists become more popular over another? Possibly, you know, there's definitely a, an, an argument that songs are being more tailored towards streaming or triggering an algorithm. But in my experience, I've not seen that with songwriters going, okay, we need to have a hook every 10 seconds because we need to hold the attention for at least 30 seconds, otherwise we don't get a credited play. But yeah, it's an interesting point. I think the great thing about the streaming side is that these sort of democratized playlists mean that the kind of streaming generation will hopefully have much broader music tastes and be open to more things. But, you know, it comes more down into the psychology of how people uh, listen to music on those kind of playlists. Do you just skip through the first 10 and go, I don't like any of them, onto the next playlist? Or do you skip through every song and, and mark down which ones you like, which ones you don't like? Or do you just look for the people you know? You know, so there's so many different ways of listening to music through playlists. And, you know, are you just there to listen to songs that are kind of fit in your mood at the time? Or are you actively trying to find a new artist to fall in love with? You can have a really long, deep dive conversation about that side of things. Ultimately, I just sort of listen out for great songs. The, the sessions I put my writers into, I don't give them any direction as to you need to write a song about this or about that, or it needs to be this long or this tempo. It's just, you're a good songwriter, you're a good songwriter, get together, see if you can get a vibe together and let's see what comes from it. I don't think putting pressure on songwriters or artists to create a piece of art for a commercial kind of target works. I think that songwriters will do what they've learned, what they've trained for, what they feel is right. And it's our job as the publisher, whether you're an indie with... 100 songs in your catalogue or a major with 5 million. It's our job to facilitate what they can do and bring the best out of them and, and try and get their songs to the best artists in the world. So before Cooking Vinyl Publishing, you were also doing A&R at Warner Chapel. And I'm wondering how important creative A&R is, like how creative is the process? My approach 
because everyone's different, but my approach is very much trying to be as hands-on as possible. The role of A&R can be go and find some artists to sign, do the deal, pay the check, and then wait for them to come back to you in a couple of years for another check. Um, my approach and how I was taught by my old director of A&R at Warner Chapel, Mike Salt, was yeah, just to try and be the writer's best friends, try and understand what they're about, what they want to do, where do they want to be in two years, three years, five years, 10 years time? What can we do to put those building blocks in place? How can we put a bit of a, like I said before, a career strategy together for them? So you're not just aimlessly chucking in sessions here and there in their diary and hoping for the best. You know, there is actually a bit of focus and a bit of direction for them. And particularly with new artists, there will be a bit of trial and error. They'll be finding out, figuring out who they work best with in terms of personalities, in terms of skill sets. My approach is to be as you know, to work directly with songwriters and that's non-performing writers as much as as artists who also want to collaborate and co-write either for their project or for another. And, you know, it's really, that's probably the most enjoyable part of my job is career development for writers because seeing a songwriter go through the stages of first few releases and then the sessions get better and better, you know, and then you have a sort of tipping point moment where they have a a song come out either with a, a bigger act or a new act that's sort of, just blows up and then all of a sudden people are coming to you for that writer as opposed to you going out and, and sort of pitching them and selling them into to projects you know that's a really enjoyable part of the job yeah it's about being really holistic and taking a really human approach and nurturing the artist and seeing them all the way through and I guess that ultimately gives you better results doesn't it and you founded a promotions night new knowledge live and you've also been an artist manager so has this helped you understand the needs of the artists you work with a bit more what what is your relationship like with the songwriters yeah so I've done a few bits I've, I've been a tour manager I've been a manager of songwriters producers and artists I've been a sort of A&R consultant on artist projects and other publishing companies and yeah run a club night for a couple of years you know like I just said just get close to songwriters to creatives you know I'm inherently not that creative myself certainly not musically creative anyway, and um, just kind of in awe of, of people who can, you know, write a great song or, or sing, you know, really well or play their instruments well, you know, and even when I was tour managing, I'd be, you know, side of the stage, best part of the day is watching the band perform and, yeah, seeing them interact with the crowd and stuff. So with songwriters, it, there's a lot of work behind the scenes of finding them, building the relationship, negotiating a deal, then getting them into sessions, pitching the songs, negotiating the song splits and marketing them around the industry, promoting them, lots and lots of conversations, thousands of emails, et cetera, et cetera. So when that moment comes where that song comes out and it blows up, it's that moment of seeing the band on stage and you kind of see what all all the effort and that work was about. That's really key for me. And I guess you can't have that moment if you don't understand what the songwriter is about. And if there's not a, a mutual respect, you know, like I said, a lot of publishers will, they'll be regarded as like banks for writers and for artists, particularly because a lot of publishers work at scale and they work on a kind of volume and market share basis. Whereas at independence, we're not chasing market share. We can't afford to just bankroll people. We have to hustle. Basically, we have to put in the work. We have to work very closely with the writers and with their management around their schedules, around what they're looking for for the next project, etc. So it's very much more looking at the relationship as like a partnership as opposed to here's your big fat check, go and enjoy it, come back when you need some more money or when your album's out. Um, it's very much more a two-way relationship 
of career development and trying to build them up, you know, take them up the next few rungs of the ladder, really. How big is your roster currently on the publishing side? Uh, we have around 20 signings, most of which are artists at the moment. And then of those 20, at the moment, only two are non-performing writers. And then we have probably four or five artists who also will collaborate with other writers to write for outside projects. When I was at Warner Chapel, I probably had a roster of 10 or 11. But yeah, it was quite often changing and rosters were getting shifted around a fair amount. Cooking Vinyl Publishing is a really small department, isn't it? So I'm just wondering how you keep up that good flow of communication with your roster. There'll be a lot of people that maybe are listening to this that want to get into publishing or even just artist management or running their own label and at the beginning it is just you and you want to expand your client base but how do you manage this how do you keep that communication up that relationship up so you're really understanding all of your projects so that you can get that reward at the end it's a good question uh you know the bottom line is it's just like i said about hustle first of all we have a team around us so we at cook vinyl we share a sync team a legal team finance and an administration with the record label so although it is me and my assistant kind of on a day-to-day you know we lean on those other services that we have in-house but yeah creatively in an A&R sense it's just me and publishing coordinator Alicia and um, there's no sort of secret to it it's just trying to be as communicative as possible whether that's through whatsapp phone calls emails and just checking in on people you know there are some writers that I'm in touch with almost on a daily basis, which generally are, are the, the non-performing writers who are constantly having sessions booked in their diary and sending songs back and having songs pitched, etc. And there are others who sort of self-contained artist projects who will just, you know, write their own music. They'll, you know, deliver a finished record and then go into the album cycle. But, you know, we, we try and make sure to check in with everyone and, you know, make sure that they're okay and if they need anything from us if they're working on a project or they want any help any suggestions and uh, and yeah you know it's just it's communication and that's one of the things that independents have to you know really pride themselves on is that personal touch and making sure that that writers and their management teams know that there's someone on the end of a phone know that there's someone on the end of an email that will come back to them because that's what we can't offer in terms of larger advances we can offer in terms of support and service to to our writers you know we're talking to writers now who we know could easily go and sign to a major publisher for more money than we can offer but they're they're choosing to sign with us because they know they can get me on on a call or on zoom anytime they'll send me a song to check out and i'll come back to them you know within an hour or two yes we have limitations because we are a small indie but we're trying to fight that with good old-fashioned hustle and you know good connections with our international partners. So there's no sort of magic to it. It's good old-fashioned relationships. It is a really relationship and communication-based industry, isn't it? And so, yeah, it's about having that good team around you and just checking in and being available. And I suppose that support has been really important to artists in the past year. You know, there's there's not anything money can do for you right now. It's more about how do you get through and how do you navigate yeah. what's happening? So that's really good advice. I'm interested how you compete 
against major publishers in new markets and how important sub-publishing relationships are in these markets. So at the moment, you have agreements with the Royalty Network in the US, Leeway Music in South Korea, uh, Sony Music in Japan. Obviously, there's Cooking Vinyl Australia. There's also a ton of other partnerships you have. So yeah, how are you competing against the major publishers and how important are your sub-publishing relationships? Yeah, really important. So one of the first things I did when I joined Cooking Vinyl was basically set about changing all of our sub-publishers, bar Cooking Vinyl Australia and, and Red Brick in Canada. And that's not because I didn't like the people who were at the, those other companies, but because how I wanted to develop the business and take it in a more kind of creative direction of signing more songwriters and, and working them internationally. It just comes down to people you get a good vibe from and are communicative and you feel that you're going to get a level of service from. One of the first trips I did was out to America and we went round and spoke to pretty much every independent publisher you can think of and most wanted to work with us but we decided to go with the Royalty Network because they're still run by their founder, Frank Lewell, who's a really lovely guy, family man, you know, much like uh, Martin Goldschmidt, who runs and owns Cooking Vinyl. And, you know, they've got a really good team, really good reputation for administration and sync, but also they're ambitious and they're looking to grow their their creative side as well. So they've just taken on a, a new A&R in LA. They just bought a studio in LA. And yeah, they were very keen to work with us and very keen for us to collaborate on projects. So that's what we were looking for. Back to what I was saying about the publisher-writer relationship, for me, I wanted that kind of relationship with sub-publishers. So I wanted to know that, you know, I've just signed this new writer or I'm, I'm looking at signing this new writer. I'm going to email my guy at Royalty Network and say, what do you think of this? You know, what are the opportunities for them in America? Maybe we can get on a call with them and we can all have a discussion with them about that. And yeah, that's kind of what we have. So kind of follow the mantra of you can't rely on sub-publishers, you want to lean on them. Not that you can't rely on them because they're not trustworthy, but they're a business in their own right. They've got their own rosters. They've got their, you know, their focus is them. If they can help you as well and you can plug into what they're doing, then, you know, that's as much as I'm after really. And that's kind of what I followed as we've done new deals around the world, particularly in the major markets. So obviously the States, Germany, Scandinavia, and over in Asia as well. I wanted to put that in place so that I could then start approaching songwriters who you know, have ambitions internationally, not just within the UK. Because coming from a management background, you don't want to sign to a publisher who promises you the world, literally. And uh, then you sign to them and they go, actually, I've never spoken to that guy in Scandinavia before, but yeah, let's do a call. Have you made any deals around the world in light of you having signed a particular artist and them doing really well in that territory or is everything aligned quite nicely? Well we're actually talking to a writer at the moment who has a good history in Asia and they've worked particularly well with company over there and they want to maintain that relationship so we are looking at ways to facilitate that we can basically carve them out of our existing sub-publisher deal and for that one particular writer we can do a separate sub-pub deal with the company that they want to work with. So they maintain a creative relationship and the sub-publishing agreement would reflect you know, what we would have had in place anyway. So again, that's a nice angle that independents can have. You know, Most of our sub-publishing agreements are exclusive, but in certain markets, we can alter that. So a sub-publishing deal essentially gives the publishers in those territories the rights to control the work there's also the option to do an administration deal, isn't there, where 
perhaps they just register the rights, they still have an understanding of that territory, can still have day-to-day contact with them to understand what's going on. Why do you think some artists or publishers may decide to go down that route? And have you got any admin deals or is it just sub-publishing? More often than not, you would just do a sub-publishing deal and you would assess the capabilities of that company ahead of doing that deal. So some companies are better than others with their administration or with the resources they have for sync or A&R. When I joined Cooking Vinyl, a lot of the international network was set up primarily for administration. And I think that was a reflection on the fact that what was being signed at Cooking Vinyl were predominantly artists and artists that were self-contained. They didn't need or didn't want an A&R input. And so the important thing was just to make sure the songs were registered and the money was collected around the world. My analysis when I joined was that that wasn't enough. You know, doing the bare minimum doesn't sort of hold water anymore. And to make the company an attractive publisher, given the constraints of being an independent, etc., you need to be able to provide opportunities for your writers. So again, like I said, it wasn't because I disliked anyone personally or anything like that but I knew that the service I wanted to offer was more of the full service yes it was the nuts and bolts of administration but it was also A&R it was also sync it was you know tapping into their creative teams are they doing writing camps are they their own studios if our writers go to the states or Germany or wherever and it was those kind of factors that were important to me as well as obviously the good communication and you know openness and friendliness of, of the business do some companies just do admin deals Yes. Depending on the scale of where you're at as a writer or an artist, you can kind of mix up your publishing situation as much as you want. You know, you don't have to sign a publishing deal. You you can be your own publisher. Depends how much work and administration you want to take on, really. Generally, the international superstar level, I I think the majority of them will probably still have publishing deals, but their splits, their royalty rate will be crazy and they'll take advances, which will be huge amounts, but they'll still rely on the publisher because they don't want the hassle of having to do royalty accounting and you know or, or auditing of the individual CMOs around the world. Lower down the sort of pyramid where writers are in sessions day to day, you know, they need that support of a partner to help them and or their manager get them into sessions, get their songs pitched around the world, pull resources of contacts and skill sets. You know, that's still a very important element. And are any of these deals reciprocal so when you have a deal like in the US are you managing any of their repertoire in the UK? Sadly not yeah this is a a major downside to being a I guess a relatively new well King Violence not a new publishing company because it's been around for 20 plus years but it's never looked to do that kind of business there are plenty of other in the UK and, and around the world that have been in existence for 50, 60, 70, 100 years plus who have sort of incumbent relationships that have gone on generations. And quite rarely do those reciprocal relationships move. So yes, we would obviously be very open to that kind of thing. But one There's the huge hurdle of international publishers having existing relationships and contracts. And two, you've got to think about our capacity as well, because Cooking Vinyl has never handled huge amounts of data. Our catalogue is around 5,000 songs. There are other independent publishers in the UK that have 200,000 songs or more, you know, going up to a million. So there's the sort of the infrastructure side of it as well. Um, That's not to say we can't do it. You know, it just means that there's additional costs involved. So there's a lot of other factors that we'd have to consider. You've got to think about what makes the business attractive to that type of uh, relationship. Again, sort of flipping what I was looking for. 
if a publisher wants to sub-publish with us, they're not just going to want us to do the administration. They'll probably want other things as well. Like, you know, they might want an advance. They might want creative support. They might want additional sync. So there are other factors. Again, there's nothing we can't handle, but we'll probably have to invest in additional resources to service that catalogue. You mentioned just then about saving time on labour and saving time when you're dealing with all the admin. And at the start of this year, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, based in the US, began to track royalties through its new data quality initiative. And this aims to centralise as much data and songs as possible because at the moment, not everything is being tracked. There's so many different databases. It's all quite messy. How do you predict that this initiative is going to help your practice? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's been talked about for a long time, and it's great that it's finally here. And yeah, I think that these kind of initiatives can only improve the back-end registrations and the sort of front-end royalty pay-through and hopefully make it more simpler, efficient, transparent, et cetera, et cetera, all, all these things. Just to sort of illustrate, going back when I was at Warner Chapel, which was only 2009 to 2014, it's not really that long ago, twice a year when raw statements came through and you know were going out to writers, we had to sit in a room with mountains of paper and physically check through streams and streams of royalties and then sign them off to make sure nothing was missed which seems just really archaic and i i remember thinking that at the time i was like surely this this isn't really how you do it right but you know that was it and um obviously there's there's huge scope for human error with that not least because we're only human you can't and these statements are regarding periods of income that may go back 12 to 18 months because it would include you know the international income as well that come through. So, you know, who can remember if a certain writer had a song on a TV show in Mexico or Germany and how many times did that show go out and how popular was it? So that was pretty crazy. Obviously, these kind of initiatives where everything's digitized and information is fed through more centralized systems is fantastic. It's the way the industry has to go. I think it won't well, I hope it will, but I don't think it will revolutionise things overnight. There'll be a period of adjustment. How long that will be, I don't know. Certainly with the independent sector, there is a lot of love for this. Ultimately, because it comes down to the economics and, you know, £100 here and there, £1,000 here and there is a lot of money to an independent in the scheme of things, whereas it's, you know, chump change to a major. So I think for the independent, certainly, it's going to be huge. And also it should happen quicker for us because we have smaller catalogue and what have you. And we tend to have more songs written 100% by writers as opposed to having 10 or 15 co-writers on them, in which case you might have 10 or 15 publishers and sub-publishers. And that's where it gets messy. Independent tend to sign artists who write their own music just to be stereotypical for a moment. So in theory, for the independent, should see positive change there relatively quickly but like with most of these things it also depends on on the major players with the huge international songs in their catalogue you know i know universal have started working with people like blocker and the mlc in the us is going to be a huge thing where everyone's got to be in on it so yeah i think it's it's a really positive change like i say i think they'll be ironing out of a few cracks here and there but on the whole it's really important yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Blocker just announced their partnership with the MLC. 
And there are so many of these new tech startups trying to power these new initiatives. But the publishing industry is over 200 years old, isn't it? I imagine it is a little bit resistant to change, but I'm interested in that general consensus as to if it does want to adopt these initiatives. And I suppose if you are seeing the chat, like you just explained at Warner Chapel, you know, going through all of that data and seeing evidence of human error. I didn't see any evidence. I'm assuming that there's probably some in there. (laughs) Only human, only human. Um, I think even if we're not adopting these initiatives, we're still sparking a narrative around what's not working or what can be improved. I think sometimes it's really hard for these initiatives to be adopted because people don't always understand the complexity of these issues, especially maybe musicians, even if publishers do or record labels do. So it's kind of about us educating on these problems so that the solutions Mm. can be understood and then they're noticed as a potential fix. Yeah. I mean, just on that, again, you know, the majors will, and, you know, not just Sony Universal and Warner, but people with large catalogues of songs. I think, you know, I genuinely think they want things to improve and change because at the end of the day, it's going to make everyone's life easier and simpler and songwriters get more money, songwriters get more money, publishers get more money, everyone wins. But you have to remember that the major companies and people with large catalogues have large catalogues. And not only is that a lot of data, but it's also a lot of money. And so they're going to be maybe not resistance change, but they're just going to be extra cautious. So they're not just going to jump into something because, you know, some influencer comes on board and says, I've got an idea for the future. You know, they're going to want to really analyze things and probably look at things and maybe buy a company, you know, ingest the company into their system and incorporate that as their own piece of software, which is why I'm saying I don't think it's going to change overnight. I think people are going to see what works, see what doesn't work wait for things to change you know there's going to be, you know like any kind of technology there's going to be early adopters there's going to be people who who sort of sit on the sidelines and see how things play out and i think you know that's just how any real major business will operate and you know let's not forget that the major companies have a commercial interest here but they're also representing the rights of songwriters so they're representing their writers rights and you know they want to make sure they're doing the best for them where it gets a little bit tasty is the conversation around who owns the major publishers and the connection between mechanical income and certain lobbying of certain digital service providers over that pay through of royalties. I think jumping back to the majors there and you saying, you know, they're responsible for their artists essentially and they do have a lot to risk and maybe they are waiting for the indies to take these risks first because they have less to risk essentially yeah and even with initiatives like image and heaps creative passport which aims to fix this data issue she said that in order to get third parties involved like major labels or, or even indie labels or streaming services she would have to pay a huge advance and you can't do this without monopolizing yourself really so this is quite contradictory to the idea of her trying to decentralize the ecosystem and create a fairer environment and so instead she's taking the angle of getting musicians and music makers on board first to build pressure for the wider industry to adopt her initiative and i guess what's interesting here is that she's really trying to play by the book and make sure everyone is getting paid and all the licenses are in place and touching on then what you just said about streaming i think the industry isn't always used to doing things properly from the get-go the industry isn't used to doing things properly where did you get that idea (laughs) in some scenarios (laughs) yeah i mean it's definitely an interesting way of doing business 
I mean, yeah, that's a whole other discussion, isn't it, about new services, new tech coming in to disrupt the music industry because of this, that or the other without maybe fully understanding the correlation between income streams or licensing necessities. Or maybe they do and they just don't give a shit. Who's to say? But I think, uh, you know, the counter argument is, well, you can't stifle innovation and, you know, this is going to save the music industry, blah, blah, blah. There's an argument for that. You want to give people a chance, but also, you know, our job as publishers is to protect the rights of our songwriters and make sure that they're getting a fair deal. So it's interesting because then you get one service which absolutely flies and does genuinely bring something new to the music industry. As a publisher, you want to support it. So there's a sort of an interesting balancing act where you've got to have that conversation of, okay, well, look, we want to help you and we want to sustain the business that you're doing, the service you're providing, but you do need to pay songwriters for this. And that conversation needs to be had and where it gets juicy and, you know, the current conversation or the, the, the unspoken conversation that's not being had is these services having agreements with the major record labels and the major record labels agreeing deals on behalf of the publishing companies that they own which then sets a precedent in the service provider's mind of, okay, well, we've done this deal with them, therefore you can have this. And obviously there's room for negotiation, but it's not a great starting point. That's where I think a lot of frustration comes in from the publishers. And as these services grow and develop, it filters down into into songwriters. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with the CMS committee, where you've got testimony from songwriters and industry organizations telling how, what they're earning from streaming, what they're, you know, how unfair it is, etc. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a, a sort of fluid conversation at the moment. I think this really resonates as well with the PRS discussion, debate, argument, call it what you like. It's happening with live stream licenses as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's another one. You know, that was a bit of an own goal from the PRS, probably quite embarrassing, I would have thought. I think the intention was good. The execution was poor. Um, but, you know, the PRS, again, they want the best for songwriters. And what they're doing is they're recognising the fact that live streaming has an element of performance to it and they want to make sure that songwriters are compensated for their songs being performed you know and obviously this is a very hot topic because no one can go and see live shows it's so people are having to do live streams we think they're only going to grow in popularity just like zoom writing sessions i think live stream live performances are going to stick around they're going to form part of a marketing campaigns and, and album campaigns going forward so it is an important issue to solve and and come to the bottom of and I think, yeah, in this particular case, a bit of consultation and discussion around around the issue with the sort of relevant stakeholders would have gone a long way. I mean, I also sit on the board of Impel, which is Independent Music Publishers' e-licensing collective, which is basically a collective of independent publishers come together to negotiate deals with the DSPs. The idea being that, you know, we're stronger together. We kind of pool our, our catalogue as one negotiable asset, strike better deals with the DSPs. This is a conversation we're having around live streaming. PRS, uh, I think, are probably the first out the gate with announcing their deal, which has since come off the table. But, you know, it's a, it's a hot topic and something we need to find a good resolution for. So it's workable for artists, but also, like I say, it compensates songwriters. I think they're along the right lines and, and absolutely they are there to protect the rights of songwriters. I just think, you know, a lot of these live streams are going ahead because they can't support their teams that support them when they are going out and playing live. And it's really now not sustainable for them to even bother to switch from their camera and do a live stream. I mean, the intentions are good for the bigger artists. It's going to be interesting to see how it affects the smaller artists. 
We've got baby artists who have predominantly their own songs. They also have a bunch of songs they've written 50-50 or in thirds, which if they did perform those, they would then have to pay the fee and then they're forced with the decision, can I afford to play that song? Well, no, because if I have to pay 40 or 50 quid, well, how many streams is that before I earn that back? How many T-shirts do I have to sell? You know, and they're forced with these decisions, which is not really in anyone's interest because their publisher and probably their record label, they're going to want them to do these things to promote themselves and do as much as possible to sort of spread awareness of what they're doing and get their music out there. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of other more complex questions around it as well. You know, is a live stream a performance? Is it a sync? Is there a mechanical element to it? So is the recording being exploited? And you think, well, if it's a live stream, if someone's tuning in to watch someone live there and they're not on that moment, that is a live performance. But then what if it's pre-recorded and then played out? Does that then make it a sync? The audio is matched to, to video. Uh, what if it's performed and recorded live, but then also made available via a catch-up service or, or sold as part of a DVD? You know, so there's uh, these other considerations taken into effect and maybe each element has a different royalty rate on pay through. So the other consideration is at what point does a performance become viewed watched where does the exploitation take place of that piece of music is it the country of origin or is it the country of destination and therefore which society which performing rights society is responsible for claiming that piece of income on the surface you're like okay live streaming i just want to get my music out there why would i have to pay for it but then you start asking all these other questions around these quite complex elements of copyright and then it just brings up all these other questions so it's really interesting and like i said ultimately everyone wants artists to be able to perform the songs and grow and build their fan bases and for fans to access the music and enjoy it and for songwriters to to have their music performed to the public as well but you know it's just a heightened conversation at the moment because everyone's scrabbling around for as much income as they can get because they're aware that albums are being delayed tours are being cancelled and it's just it's tough times for everyone and these issues are really complex issues that have been around for quite a long time. And obviously, they're just being hugely amplified in the past year. And this links back really nicely to the digital sustainability we were speaking about at the start, when we were talking about whether well streaming artists are more likely to be signed A&R wise. Is this going to change genres? How is this going to translate into live shows? And it's really interesting to learn about the creative side of A&R the approach you're taking to your relationships with songwriters and how important the sub-publishing relationships are across the world so that you can really monetize the rights of your songwriters and also understanding how maybe new initiatives may be adopted where we're at now and how much further we have to go. So yeah, this has been really eye-opening and it's been great to learn about your time in publishing and what you're doing at Cooking Vinyl especially. So yeah, thank you so much. Okay, no worries. Thank you. Thank you to Ryan for being on Digital Dissect to discuss everything from A&R to global publishing relationships that help support songwriters all the way around the world. It will be interesting to see in the years to come if streaming artists really are changing genres and how publishers retain value for their writers as the digital economy continues to layer on complexity to rights management. If you found that conversation useful, then please subscribe to Digital Dissect on the podcast app of your choice for free to be notified when the next episode drops. 
Please get involved at rebeccarees.org slash digital dissect with your thoughts and opinions and follow digital.dissect on Instagram to join in the journey as we figure out the complexities of the music industry. Please go and give a review as it helps others find the podcast much easier. Thank you again to Ryan and all of the team in the show notes.